0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Escape Fire movie, the Tom Hartman program, the Majority Report, the Young Turks, the Onion Radio News, the David Packman Show, and Best of the Left Activism. Now, be sure to consult your doctor before listening to this episode. Side effects include a terribly long list of things too embarrassing to even mention.
1: All I hear is how we're going to give more people access to the present system and how we're going to pay for it. But the present system doesn't work and it's going to take us down. We need a whole new kind of medicine. We don't have a health care system in this country. We have a disease management system.
2: Many people have a hard time believing that these simple choices that we make in our lives each day can make such a powerful difference
1: the American health care system it's generating rivers of money that are flowing into very few pockets
2: in the health insurance industry at the executive level what's most important is meeting Wall Street's expectations and they have to these for-profit companies by law have to serve shareholders you almost forget what you're doing is providing health care
1: the health care system is unsustainable we're really mortgaging the future not just the health of healthcare, care we're talking about the health of the nation
3: community health center like where I work the administration is telling you you need to see more patients we're in the red so it sounds like you are feeling really overwhelmed right now Sorry. don't be sorry (laughs) I can't spend the time with a patient and you end up kind of being this revolving door you just never get to the bottom of things when you reward physicians for doing procedures instead of talking to patients
4: that's what they're gonna do is do procedures if I spend five minutes with you and put in one of these stents, I'd probably get paid 8000 on up. For me to spend 45 minutes on an established visit with a patient and to try to figure out what their true problem is, I'd probably get paid $15.
5: It's a completely
6: irrational system.
5: 30,000 Medicare recipients die each year from care they didn't need.
0: That's the equivalent of a jumbo jet crashing every single week. If the aviation industry
7: killed as many people, we'd be up in arms.
1: How did we come to believe that the only way to treat disease is by giving drugs?
8: The military is a microcosm of what the problem society is having.
9: Soldiers' use of prescription drugs has tripled in the past
1: five years.
9: When you're deployed, they feed
8: you, feed you, feed you,
9: feed you. All this stuff just to keep you going. Mission, mission, mission. This... medications I was on.
1: Most of the disease that we deal with is lifestyle-related and therefore preventable. We've got to move in the direction of disease prevention and health promotion. At Safeway, we provide
2: incentives for people to engage in healthier behavior. We've improved the health of our workforce, the productivity of our workforce, and our own bottom line. So making money and
1: doing good in the world are not mutually exclusive. We're We're all salaried. What we do for a patient is dependent upon what the patient needs, not on our financial incentives.
5: The Army Surgeon General directed that we establish the Pain Management Task Force to take a look at alternatives to narcotics.
7: I'm two and a half months out of combat. I was skeptical. So skeptical.
1: I am a complete new person by accepting the fact that the healthcare system is badly broken, we can seek out the escape fires, the potential solutions, and create a sustainable and patient-centered system for the future.
6: If you don't take care of you, nobody else will.
4: And I can do that. Yeah. You can.
10: Paul Ryan and his buddies talk about slashing government spending. What they're really saying is they don't want government money going to working class or poor Americans. they got no problem at all when that government spending is going to their millionaire and billionaire buddies who run America's giant health insurance corporations. And in the process of handing over money to corporate executives, Republicans are costing American taxpayers and the economy trillions of dollars. For example, if the Republicans hadn't fought President Obama over a public option, or even a single payer system under Obamacare, and we had followed the path of Medicare's rollout in 1966, which the Republicans didn't like, but they didn't like lay down in the street, they didn't vote over and over and over and over and over again in the House of Representatives to repeal, they just said, okay, you guys win. If we had followed the path of Medicare's rollout in 66, we would have saved billions of dollars. PNHP.org, Physicians for National Health Program, did a study on this. And what they found, uh, these researchers at the City University of New York, is, that's CUNY, isn't it? Is that how they say it? CUNY? That when all is said and done, the costs of getting Obamacare up and running and enrolling 7 million Americans in the program in the first year, are going to total about $6 billion. So that's about roughly $90 a person. You compare that to the cost of Medicare's rollout back in 1966. According to the CUNY researchers, Medicare's costs in the first year totaled $867 million in today's dollars. That's roughly $5.1 billion less than what Obamacare is costing its first year. And within 11 months of LBJ signing Medicare into law, 19 million people, senior citizens, had signed up for it. That's 99% of everybody who was eligible. So why was the 1966 Medicare rollout so cheap compared to the Obamacare rollout? It was cheaper because back then Republicans weren't shilling for their billionaire friends in the health industry by opposing a single-payer system or a public option. Because Medicare is single-payer. Dr. David Himmelstein, one of the CUNY researchers, put it, the simple single-payer Medicare-for-all approach would save more than $400 billion annually on bureaucracy, enough to give every American first-dollar coverage. But to get those savings, you have to break private insurers' stranglehold on health care and on Washington. He added, Obamacare is a giant workaround crafted to keep private insurers at the center of the healthcare system. So simply put, a single-payer health care system, which excludes billionaire private insurers and the influences they have over Republicans in Washington, could save our country billions of dollars. And we don't have it. That's the bad news. Now here's the good news. There's a backdoor built into Obamacare, which lets the individual states create their own single-payer health care system starting in 2016. And at least one state has already jumped on board. Back in 20, 2011, the Vermont state government enacted a law creating the nation's first state-level single-payer health care system. It's called Green Mountain Care. Kaiser Family Foundation describes Green Mountain Care as a state-funded and managed insurance pool that would provide near-universal coverage to residents with the expectation that it would reduce health care spending. In a blog post for the Huffington Post, Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin, who has been on this program and talked about this, said that Green Mountain Care is a single-payer system that will not, that will control health care costs, not just by cutting fees to doctors and hospitals, but by fundamentally changing the state's health care system. Seeing the support that a single-payer healthcare system has gained in Vermont, other states are beginning to follow suit. Right now, lawmakers in Montana are working hard to establish a single-payer system in that state. Slowly but surely, more and more states are going to realize the overwhelming benefits of a single-payer healthcare system, like mostly, it cuts your costs in half. And once, once that happens, we can expect to see the Canadian experience all over again. You know, in Canada, they they did this in Saskatchewan, and it worked so well that every other province said, "Hey, we want that." So I think it's you know quite possible that by 2020 we're going to have a system of state-run single-payer systems here in the United States, just like there is province by province in Canada, you know, overseen by the federal government. But here's the sad part of this. This should have happened years ago. I mean, we should have done this. We, we could have done this before Canada did. But, you know, Republican obstructionism, we've had to spend years getting to a rational and cost-effective health care system, and we're not even there yet, when it could have been done 69 years ago, when President Harry Truman first proposed the legislation back in November of 1945. That was when he uh, we first proposed single-payer legislation. Over the past 69 years, people have been dying and going bankrupt for lack of health care because of the Republican commitment to their health care billionaires. Now, Obamacare is a start, but it's only a piece of the puzzle. America needs a single-payer health care system, and we need it now. Congressman John Conyers has once again introduced House Resolution 676, the United States National Health Care Act, which calls for the creation of a single-payer health care system here in the United States. We could do this. Make single payer healthcare system a reality in, in America.
9: Unkind people do not shelter this dream, make it real.
0: but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
2: I, to, I want to talk about this story about the um, Aviston and the it's a. It's a fascinating story that was in the uh, Washington Post. And it is the just one of many stories that give you an indication of just why it is that this country pays double what any other Western industrialized country pays to provide health care on a per capita basis to uh, its citizens. And I'm not just talking about what is spent on the um, in the private sector, but also even the public sector. So we spend even more per capita. More than any other Western industrialized country, and we don't, as a government, and we don't cover. We don't ensure access to health insurance still for all of our uh, uh, citizens in this country. But this is a perfect example, and this is also. I mean I don't know if this is um, uh, something that is specifically indicative of of, of the dynamic that will be created under uh, the the TPP and its cousin. I don't know what they call it, the EU partnership or uh something something uh, opaque like that but there are two drugs out there that are used in the treatment of a degenerative eye disease uh wet wet master i don't know what the uh what the um wet age related macular i should say uh, degeneration, and this is apparently as you get older, um, your macular degenerates, and you you can you can go blind.
7: How's your macula doing, Sam? I have
2: no idea, but I, I imagine not well. <laughs> the treatment, the official treatment for this, is a drug called Lucentis. It costs two thousand dollars per injection. It has been developed by a company called Gene Genentech, which is a division of the Roche Group. Prior to releasing Lucentis at $2,000 per injection, Genentech years earlier had released a drug called Avistin, which was used in the treatment of different types of cancers, colon cancer, other types of cancers. At one point, a doctor, when they were trying to figure out how to treat, this is prior to uh, Lucentis being developed, when they were trying to treat, figure out how to treat the, uh, this degenerative eye disease, A doctor started to experiment with Avastin, using it in basically an off-label use, is what they call. And uh, they were testing it in the same dosage, and uh, they stumbled across the fact that it was helping this eye disease. However... The drug, Avastin, given in that amount, has a lot of difficult side effects. So they cut the dosage and directly injected it essentially close to the eye or in the eye. And they found that it was incredibly effective for this, uh, this ailment. And they did so before Genentech, which apparently had also realized this, had come out with Lucentis, which is essentially, according to a Toledo ophthalmologist who founded a group called Physicians for Clinical Responsibility, they found that Lucentis is Avastin, it's the same, there's a quote, it's the same damn molecule with few cosmetic changes, i.e. dosage size. And so what was happening before the development of Lucentis, and continues to happen, was that secondary drug companies were buying um, Avastin, cutting the size of the dosage, Reselling it to uh, doctors in a lower dosage, one that you can actually give easier to the patients in terms of an injection, so that there's no questioning how much you've actually pulled out of uh, whatever the injection is, and it's being treated. So about 50% of the doctors out there use Avastin as repackaged by other companies. And 50% use Lucentis. The question is, obviously, why would you use Lucentis? And that is because doctors, when they are administering a drug and are being reimbursed by Medicare, get a 6% markup from the cost of the drug. Even I can do this math. Six percent of 50 bucks is around, I don't know, two dollars and 75 cents. Six percent of 2000 is closer to, I don't know, what, 170 bucks? On top of that, GDentech offers rebates to doctors who use large volumes. Of the more expensive drug. In other words, kickbacks. Because they're not going to pass that kickback on to their patients.
7: They should be able to profit too. After all, we're not communists. (laughs) That's right.
2: (laughs) And unfortunately, the FDA does not have the ability to compel GeneNTech to get aviston approved for the use in the treatment of this drug now because it's off-label and because it's found to have it's already been tested in terms of safety and because we actually have a drug regime in this country where you don't have to prove that a drug is actually effective or more effective than another drug to sell it in that way In this instance, it is helping people because the drug company refuses to apply for a license for the cheaper drug. So this just goes to show you just how bizarre our system is in this country. Now, if we had Medicare had the ability to say, hey, you know, We're not going to provide reimbursement for Lucentis because there's no point in that. You can can get a drug that is 40 times cheaper. It is proven to be just as effective. There have been six clinical trials now that have shown that it actually is as effective and is no less safe. In fact, the only safety issues that come up that are infinitesimally small but exist, are in the processing of Avastin into smaller doses and being resold. There was a scare about this in some other drug. I can't remember what it was a couple of months ago because you have some of these uh, repackaging companies where there's potential for contamination. So we have no authority in terms of, like, Medicare to say we're not going to reimburse you for this clearly more expensive, less effective, or I should say equally effective drug. And so doctors continue to charge Medicare for this. You're talking billions upon billions of dollars simply wasted because a company has figured out, like, we can put up our... sort of more expensive label, designer version of this drug, which does the exact same thing. And n- Medicare, the, one of the biggest buyers of this, uh, payers for this drug, essentially, they're not buying it, the doctors are buying it. Buyers of this drug, uh, or I should say payers of this drug, they can't do anything about it. Because Sarah Palin will be out there screaming death panels. You're not allowing uh, these people to inject themselves with the exact same drug and a 40 times more cost point. It's communism. And as far as I can tell, that there's a provision in that TPP that would prevent countries from... Sort of making those the types of determinations. Ter- I don't know if it would apply in this necessary set, but that's the dynamic. Uh, so this is another uh, installment of this is why our medicine and medical treatment in this country costs so much more than in any other industrialized nation. It's because. We allow this, I don't know, I would call it fraud, but snake oil essentially to be legalized. Or the snake oil packaging.
6: company, GlaxoSmithKline, has agreed to stop paying doctors to promote its drugs, which is actually pretty unheard of with pharmaceutical companies because this was a long-held practice that probably led to a lot of prescriptions that shouldn't have been prescribed. So just to give you some more detail into what they're doing specifically, according to the New York Times, they will no longer pay doctors to promote its products and will stop tying compensation of sales representatives to the number of of prescriptions doctors write. I think the second part is extremely important because think about that for a second. You give sales representatives and you give doctors a huge incentive to over prescribe and that's been an ongoing problem in this country especially when it comes to prescription drug abuse. So some might wonder like why is this happening? Why have they out of nowhere decided to make this decision? Well first let me tell you what the chief executive uh, Andrew Whitty, had to say. He said we keep asking ourselves are there different ways, more effective ways of operating than perhaps the ways we as an industry have been operating over the last 30, 40 years? So that sounds very open minded.
11: Not buying it.
6: But the reality is, it turns out that there are some parts of the Affordable Care Act that are excellent and it actually impacted the decision that this pharmaceutical company made. According to the Affordable Care Act, all such payments by pharmaceutical companies are to be made public next year mm. under requirements of the Obama administration's health care law. All
11: right. So, first of all, it's great news, because this is part of the reason why all those drugs are pushed on people, the ADHD uh, prescriptions are through the roof, way overprescribed, about triple of what they need to be, according to some studies. It's because the sales agents are paid based on the prescriptions, so then they grease up the doctors in every imaginable ways. And every time we do a story like this, a doctor will write in and say, oh, no, no, no I'm not affected by it. I believe you. But other doctors are. They're all human beings. They do respond to financial uh, incentives. Okay. One of the incentives they used to throw at is the thing that they're taking away here. Oh, you're going to get to go to a great conference in Hawaii, in Vegas, or whatever it is. All Don't expense worry. paid. Yeah, all expense paid on us. You think they're not motivated by that? Oh no, they no, no. some doctors aren't. A lot of doctors are. Okay. It's not by magic that all this. Prescriptions went up so dramatically over the last 30, 40 years. And give me a break with that, we decided to do this voluntarily. Like, look, there's a couple of things here. First of all, GlaxoSmithKline paid nearly a half a billion dollar penalty uh in China for some of the abuses they were doing to bribe uh, uh people to boost his drug sales. They paid a three billion dollar settlement in the US with the government last year over charges that have provided misleading information on certain drugs, right? Now, but it's not what happened in the past. Anna's right. What's going to happen next year is what's the most important. Right. So, it. No, none of these corporations do things out of the bottom of their heart, and because they feel good about. Oh, you know what? It's a new day in America. No, 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 because we're going to find out what you're doing anyway. Yes, that's what you're scared of. So
6: these corporations, as you guys know, when there is a profit motive and there's a bottom line that they have to think about, they're thinking about the money. They're not thinking about morality or ethics or anything like that. But some might argue, well, we've been knowing the fact that doctors are getting paid by pharmaceutical companies or at least they're getting incentives to over prescribe certain drugs what's gonna what's going to be so different in the future well the Affordable Care Act will not only force them to disclose this information they will have to put it on a very specific website that's easily accessible so anyone who wants to know how much money these companies have given to doctors can easily go to a website and they'll know all the information necessary that way if they don't want to take a particular drug they don't have to right
11: and by the way in Europe very similar law that's going to go to Effect in 2016, so they know it's coming. They're trying to get ahead of it and pretend to be the nice guys. Look, it's good news either way. I'll take it, It right? But and look, I'm very mixed on uh, the Affordable Care Act, but this is a very good part of it. And you have to give credit where credit is due, and see, look at the positive results that it has led to in this case. By the way, just GlaxoSmithKline, just that one company, just on junkets that they send the doctors to in the conferences, they spent had a yearly budget of 82 million dollars you think they're doing that for their health okay no pun intended no they're doing it so those doctors go "Oh, you man boy do you need this GlaxoSmithKline product okay and you think they're not tracking how many how many prescriptions that doctor is given and then giving him trips accordingly well we already did a study where we found out that's exactly what they're doing the more prescriptions you give us the more free trips you get right now that that's going to be exposed all of a sudden they have a new program called patient first Shouldn't, have your whole, shouldn't your whole company have been patient first from the beginning? Now, all of a sudden, after Europe and the U.S. passed the right laws, all of a sudden, what do you mean? Patient first.
5: Here's a map, if you're watching our program today, that shows the damage caused by the anti-vaccination movement. We've been covering the anti-vaccination movement for years, Lewis. And if you remember, one of the catalysts of the anti-vaccination movement was back in 1998, Andrew Wakefield put out a paper which claimed, claimed to link the MMR vaccine, which is measles, mumps, and rubella, to the onset of autism no other scientist was ever able to corroborate those findings and it later became known as we talked about on this program with Seth Manukin, who wrote a book about it it turned out that Andrew Wakefield had a financial conflict where he stood to make money from I believe it was like a standalone measles vaccine it might have been mumps. I think it was a measles vaccine and he encouraged parents to, to rather than getting the MMR vaccine, to ask specifically for the measles-only vaccine, which apparently, I guess, according to him, did not cause autism. And if you look at the map we have up, you'll see the global outbreaks of measles, mumps, rubella, polio, whooping cough from 2008 to 2014. These are diseases all easily preventable by vaccine and they can have significant consequences. The CDC estimates that about 164,000 people from around the world will die from measles each year. There is a strong resurgence in the United Kingdom. The US has seen an increase in whooping cough, also causing 195,000 deaths per year. And the majority of these deaths are happening in areas with little access to vaccines and in the united states and the uk this really shouldn't be happening at all uh we've talked maybe a little bit about jenny mccarthy who is the i guess uh, a playboy model turned actress host turned pseudoscience advocate she started speaking out against vaccines in 2007 She believes that they caused her son's autism. Some believe that based on her son's symptoms that he actually isn't even autistic, that he has Landau-Kleffner syndrome. She's written books. One of them has a foreword from Andrew Wakefield. This is a serious thing. And for people who say, why do you care if others don't get vaccinated? If you get vaccinated, then you will be safe. What the vaccine does is increase to a much higher level the tolerance to certain individual cells of a of a disease, and it kind of prepares your immune system to respond more quickly. It works best when everyone is immunized. If you have people who aren't immunized, then they can generate the bacteria or virus uh, uh, to, a, 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 to an, a to an extent that overwhelms that threshold to which the vaccine provides protection. So Lewis, number one, those who say, hey, worry about yourself. Me not vaccinating my kid has absolutely no effect on you. That's factually not true. And we're actually seeing, as the map shows us, the real impact of this anti-vaccination
0: movement. I expect we're going to get a lot of uh a lot of angry uh emails and and voicemails about this. Uh, This is a really uh heated debate that's going on with this. But uh, you know people need to need to do the research yeah and and for people
5: who are going to email me with individual cases of things that have happened with vaccines I listen everything you do carries a certain risk and if you look at the mortality rate from the vaccine versus the mortality and contagion rate from not having the vaccine and the potential for getting the disease I have yet to see any evidence that would suggest to me that the anti-vaccination movement is a is a good idea
8: I don't think it's right Bad idea Keep me up in the night I got a bad idea I don't think it's
10: right. My
0: friend David Pacman is in the middle of a fundraising campaign right now to expand the reach of his show. The David Pacman show has never been funded by big
5: corporations, but always directly by our audience. And we're asking for your help to expand our show to five days per week. This will allow us to compete head on with the homogenous corporate media that you and I are very tired of. We need to fund extra staff hours, hire a new part timer. Upgrade our video editing equipment and pay for
0: more bandwidth, and we're asking for your help. The campaign has raised about a third of its goal so far and has 17 days remaining. For details, go to davidpackman.com and click on the banner link to the Indiegogo campaign, where you'll see all the information on the campaign and the perks you can earn by supporting it. I,
8: I, I got a bad
0: idea.
8: I don't think it's right.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stand up for mental health. More than 46 million Americans suffer from some sort of mental illness. That is a sizable and fluid minority. As some disorders are temporary and situational, the likelihood that you or someone close to you will be affected by mental illness during your lifetime is significant. Yet, despite the commonplace nature of mental health issues, the stigma surrounding any illness or disorder that can be placed under that heading is intense and affects nearly every aspect of life. In fact, we often categorize mental health care as separate from other health care, as if one's mind has no effect on one's physical well-being. This separation is one of the reasons there are often job and relationship consequences to speaking up, seeking care, and disclosing even minor details of one's mental illness, thus condemning many to silent suffering. As actress Pia Glenn describes in a piece for Exo Jane, simply looking or sounding sad can lead to rejection and stigmatization. Quote, "...depression can bring with it a component of being trapped within oneself, which can read to others as a form of self-centeredness, provoking a snap-out-of-it response." It is an ugly reality that can hopefully be lessened with treatment and awareness of our surroundings, unquote. She goes on to describe times in her life when she experienced bouts of depression, providing a glimpse into the destructive forces of silence and shame. Quote, back at home, I would grin and bear it, willing my body to not produce tears because I was concerned that signs of my being upset would only serve to upset my mother more, unquote. And now, while she still deals with the effects of depression, she proclaims, quote, I refuse to be shamed for speaking up anymore, unquote. Glenn's piece links to HealthyPlace.com, an informative consumer mental health site established in 1999, which has resources on disorders and medications, a social network for support and breaking mental health news, as well as unique tools which can enable individuals in being their own best advocates. As their online community has grown, tackling the public perception of mental illness has become a natural part of their mission. Through their stand-up for mental health campaign, they seek to, quote, stop the stigma, stop the hate, stop the culture of intolerance, unquote. By breaking down these barriers to seeking care, we can become a healthier and more functional society. In the new era created by increasing discrimination protections and the Affordable Care Act extending new opportunities for millions to access care they need without jeopardizing their financial health, the chance to permanently destigmatize mental health has never been greater. When you visit healthyplace.com slash stigma, you'll be connected to profile buttons that social media users can click to add supportive badges to their pages and handles, a simple but powerful way to show solidarity and invite discussion among your networks. Should you feel emboldened to do so, the Stand Up for Mental Health page has tools for publicly disclosing your own mental illness while connecting you with a community of others, speaking out and refusing to let their private challenges dictate the way the world sees them. It is long past time we fully integrated mental health into our broader healthcare structure and extended treatment and support to the estimated one in five Americans who live with a disorder at any given time. Stand up with us to at least move from fear and stigma to hope and care. As Glenn ends her piece in Exo Jane, quote, shame is for the birds. It makes us hide and impedes getting better. Joy is ours to experience as well, and it is okay to need help getting there, unquote.
4: Activism.
8: Activism. Activism.
4: Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war, intolerance, AIDS, obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. Seriously. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage
7: with action? I'll do this story about the CEO of Bear, Bear, yes, that's Bear Pharmaceuticals. And I should preface this story by saying that this CEO is the most honest pharmaceutical CEO on the planet. That he is. It is astonishing. If we had the soundboard, I'd give him... A shofar? A sh- well, no. A charge? I'd give him a round of applause. Maybe charge. But uh, we, we, as we know, we, uh, Sam spoke several months ago uh, to a professor, I think his name was Kay Baker, about uh, India's decision last year to protect the production of generic drugs so that uh... the population uh... normal indians not just poor indians also middle class indians had access uh, to vital pharmaceutical drugs uh... in the form of generics which are obviously much cheaper than patented pharmaceutical drugs the pharmaceutical industry hates this uh... this has been a major theme in global relations in the late nineteen nineties when uh, South Africa was trying to, uh, to develop, uh, generics, uh, for AIDS and push, uh, delivering AIDS, uh, medications through generics. Uh, the Clinton administration on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, put enormous pressure on the South African government at that time of Nelson Mandela, uh, to, to back off of that. Uh, that of course has led to disasters in South Africa. And then also libertarians. Another important thing about uh, uh, the way we arrange the global pharmaceutical industry right now is that you have some drugs that people need everywhere, like cancer and AIDS drugs, which are not available because of the prices, because of the patents held by pharmaceuticals. Then there's also whole other classes of research and drugs that we don't put research and funding into on certain types of tropical and infectious diseases because... Mainly they affect developing countries and poor people, and there's no money to be made. And since there's no public, uh, not near the amount of public investment that we need in global pharmaceutical research, uh, people are just left to fence for themselves. The wonderful market at work. I'm sure, if you call in, you'll have some, you know, maybe, uh, but. Maybe one of these people dying from an untreatable infectious disease or doesn't have access to an AIDS medication, maybe they somehow randomly have access to a color TV or something and life is better than it was 100 years ago. Uh, those That's one thing I can think of. But anyways, the CEO of Bayer Pharmaceutical, which as we know is one of the largest global pharmaceuticals uh, in the country, uh, the FDA having granted approval several years ago to a cancer-fighting drug uh, Nexavar, which Bayer, uh, developed and took the to market in 2005. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and the CEO, Marjan Deckers, was talking to Bloomberg Businessweek about the history and future of this drug. And he said, in response to questions about costs, and this is where he has definitely proven himself the most honest, uh, pharmaceutical CEO in the history of the planet.
5: And this is an exact
7: quote we should add. This is an exact quote. Quote, this CEO Deckers, the CEO of Bear telling Bloomberg Businessweek, quote, We did not develop this medicine for Indians. We developed it for Western patients who can afford it. Let me just read that one more time. We did not develop this medicine for Indians. We developed it for Western patients who can afford it, said Decker's. Of course... That, thank you. The most honest, on-the-record pharmaceutical CEO in the world. I'm sure that that's been said at many pharma, pharma meetings that aren't on the record.
5: Actually, I'm sure that was a round of applause. That actually happened, that, like, the
7: bare annual, like... The shareholders I meeting mean, was a slow clap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, of course, besides that being intrinsically uh, disgusting comment... Uh, and a great illustration of all the problems in global pharmaceuticals, it belies the whole uh, pharma argument against generics, which is that it's unfair for them uh, in terms of competing in India. Well, it doesn't seem like they want to compete in a place like India. It doesn't seem like they want those those poor people to use their cancer-fighting drugs. So again, what's the problem with generics uh, being delivered to poor people? When you've just said you want only a luxury market, I didn't realize cancer fighting drugs were like buying a Mercedes, but if they are, you shouldn't be concerned with somebody driving a Pinto. Except in this case, it's the same car.
5: It's also an extremely racist comment to assume that there are no Indians who could afford it.
7: Well, it's 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 a, a historical racist and honest comment. <laughs> That's true. From Margin Deckers, the CEO of Bear Pharmaceuticals. So that What's that, that name again? I am uh, this is another european name that i'm having trouble with. Marjean Deckers.
5: Oh no, I'm not even calling you out on your pronunciation. I just think his name should be mentioned with that quote as much as CEO possible.
7: of Bear, I'm going to spell it M A R I J N and the Deckers.
0: One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without rest- Restrictions. So, if you can afford ten bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content, including extra voicemails, behind the scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
1: It's the Onion Radio News. A new once-a-month vitamin presents a choking hazard. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The makers of Strong Tabs, a -a once-a-month multivitamin which hit store shelves in January, are voluntarily recalling nearly 3 million coated packages of the product after numerous reports of choking incidents. Strong Tabs spokesperson Cheryl Winston says the egg-sized supplements designed for the larger American gullet are just a bit too hard for some people to swallow.
5: We thought that Americans with their busy lifestyles would like the convenience of a -a one-a-month pill and be done with it. If we've choked anyone accidentally, we
4: sincerely apologize.
1: Winston added that Strong Tabs is offering a full refund, even for partially choked on vitamins. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com. And
4: it's
6: There's a new drug on the market that will help cure Hepatitis C which of course is great news because for a very long time it's been very difficult to cure it. It is a liver disease and it affects more people than HIV does. In fact let me give you some numbers. Um, Hepatitis C uh, impacts about 3 million Americans um, and also 170 million worldwide. When it comes to HIV it's 1.1 million Americans and 34 million globally. So obviously both are very serious but more are victims of Hepatitis C. So thankfully there is a new drug on the market that can help cure it, it's known as Savaldi, and it costs about $1,000 per pill, and if you're wondering how long you need to be on this treatment in order to get cured, it's about uh, 12 weeks for the program, and it runs the average user about $84,000. So the reason why this is being covered by the press right now is because some are questioning whether or not this is a fair price for something that is supposed to cure a terrible disease. right? uh, there has been some analysis of this uh, and the analysis indicates that um, if you want to produce the drug it's about 150 to 250 per person right yeah. to produce the, drug. To produce the so, drug why do you need to charge a thousand dollars per pill
3: I'm gonna play devil's advocate for a mm-hmm. second and because I have major problems with the kind of pharmaceutical medical industrial complex in this country and i hate that we have a for-profit medical system Mm -hmm. i think it's Mm. highly immoral but aside from that being Being the case that we do have a for-profit medical uh, system in this country, yes, that is the cost of production of the drug, but what's the factor here of R&D on this drug? How long did it take to develop? How many people have to be paid? How much money was funneled in to coming up with this treatment? And a lot of times what happens is that one kind of hallmark drug for a drug company, for a pharmaceutical company, has to pay for development of other drugs that they also do. So I think sometimes it's, it's a little more complicated than just, this is how much it costs to produce, this is how much they should sell it for, in order to get a good profit. That being said, is this a fair profit? I don't know, because this seems like significantly higher. It
6: seems very excessive, and I I like that you pointed all that out, Kara, because there are some details that I should mention to the audience. So for instance, um, Gilead Sciences Inc., that is the pharmaceutical company that produces this drug. They actually acquired another company that began uh, the research on it, and they spent about $11 billion on that, right? So the argument would be, well, you know what, they need to get a return on their investment, and they need to turn a profit. Let's keep it real. We have a profit motive here, and they want to make some money off of it, but even considering that, all they would need um, is about 150,000 people to purchase their drug in order to already make up for that investment. Anything above that is now going to be a profit, right? So let's let's take that into consideration and bring the cost down. However, after uh, the vice president of this pharmaceutical company talked to the press and that suggestion was offered to him, he basically said, yeah, we're unlikely to do that. We might yeah. help some Americans when it comes to the cost, but we're looking to make some money here. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. And they know that they're only going to make money in an American market because truth be told, this is, a, this is a horrible epidemic in America. It's an even worse epidemic globally. They know they can't make that kind of money in a global market. They have to charge less money once they start selling this drug to people in second and third world and developing nations and so america's going to be the market where they have to recoup their investment unfortunately now that being said most americans in this country now have access to to affordable health care. And so I wonder how much their health insurance is going to play into this conversation. They, they've they got to be able to get access even if they have a pre-existing condition like hepatitis C. Definitely. So is this drug going to be covered by their health plan? Let's hope so.
6: Yeah, it's always interesting to see the specifics of the Affordable Care Act and, and how it will impact certain cases like this. Um, but another thing to take into consideration is that some people do not need um, some people need more than 12 weeks of treatment. Some people need double the treatment in order to cure uh, the condition. So, all right, I mean, how can you imagine even spending more than eighty-four thousand dollars on curing yourself from hepatitis C? That's inconceivable. I mean, if someone yeah. came to me and said you need that money to cure yourself from something that will eventually kill you, I just can't come up with that kind of money. But, yes, but
3: I've got feel hepatitis like C to. now. Yeah. But here's here's another interesting counterpoint there, which again, not a moral argument on my point uh, on my on my side, but I think it's an important point to make. Until this drug was developed, there was no cure for hepatitis C. There were only treatments. There were only things that would keep the disease at bay. And they
6: were. They they had horrible side. They effects had horrible as well. side effects, and
3: a lifetime of those treatments, late phase treatments, was going to run you significantly more than eighty-four so thousand. Really so this actually could save the average person who has so hepatitis C wait money. So
5: wait a minute. So this this is a g- definite cure, this for, is hepatitis a cure C? for hepatitis C. No kidding. Yeah.
3: I mean, no that's amazing, kidding. right? So would you pay $84,000 to do your if Yes, happy, if this is for real. This is for real. <laughs> so really
12: fast, one point that I want to make. So you gave like the most reasonable example of the calculus that goes into, well, we, we spent a lot of money to develop it. We need to make our money back. You were totally reasonable. Some people I think on the right would go a step farther and sort of, with it like I guess an atlas shrug sort of point of view like how dare you even discuss how much they should be allowed to price it as if like well you know this is a free market we're competing and they came up with the good drugs so they get to charge whatever they want but the problem is is that Mm -hmm. the market is not free at all because they're going to have a protected patent on this Mm -hmm. for as far out into the future as you can see and even right now in the 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 TPP negotiations that are going on right now one big part of it is increasing the duration of medical patents So you can't, on the one hand, say, we developed it in a free market, and so we should be able to charge whatever we want, and then say, there will be no competition from generic substitutes for this for 17, 20, even longer yep. years. You can't have it both ways. Like, yeah,
3: but apparently you can, because well, that, is, thing, yes. that is the market that they see. And this is my main problem. This is my, my biggest problem with a for-profit healthcare care system. Health care, I think, is an unalienable right. I think that healthcare care is something that I have a very strong social view when it comes to health care, and I'm not afraid to say that. I think that we should have a single-payer option in this country, and I think that everybody should be able to, to have access to affordable health care, because you cannot control why somebody gets sick and why somebody else doesn't. It has absolutely nothing to do with any sort of market you know, ebbs and flows, and the real danger here is that when you have a free market system surrounding health care, you're incentivized to keep people sick.
6: Absolutely. That's such
3: a a damaging damaging it, system that our, we have in this country I mean are there any success stories of socialized medicine? <laughs> this is what I mean,
12: can you point anywhere else in the world where people have a better Where's outcome medically? Where's the math? Uh, every country? Every
3: single hmm, developed that's nation. That's right? really every, weird. Every, no, every developed nation. They
12: have to wait a little while. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do. They do. That's totally true. And so conservatives will say in Canada, you have to wait longer to get your treatment, which is true. You ask them and they say, yeah, it sucks you have to wait. And then you ask them a follow-up question, which doesn't get reported. Would you prefer to go to the American They're like. Fuck
0: no, I'd rather wait for a little while. Also, did
3: you know that we are the only developed nation in the world where it's legal to market? drugs to the, directly to the drugs. consumer. Yep. yes. Because
6: it's immoral. Yes. Why do you think it's outlawed everywhere else in the world? Because it's highly immoral. Ask your that. doctor about whatever anti-anxiety, anti-depression yeah. drug that we're offering you right now. And you as, have
12: access to WebMD. You know better than exactly. he does. Ask him about all sorts of expensive and as, shit.
3: I have to quote him, as Bill Maher once said, which I think is one of the most brilliant quotes that he's ever said. When, and I'm not going to say it verbatim, but once you are asking your doctor for drugs instead of him telling you which yep. drugs you take he's no longer your doctor he is now your dealer oh, definitely that's, uh, it's that's so true point. yes
8: that is true
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So recently there was a conversation about uh, choice reproductive rights on this show. It went back and forth between uh, some voicemails. And to my great surprise and astonishment, we did not settle the issue. Uh, so it's come back up. Some more messages have come in. So we're going to go through those. And But I'm, I just wanted to give a chance to uh, in, introduce them as, as they went. So uh, this, this conversation sort of started with this message.
1: Hi, Jay. This is uh, Colin from Nebraska. Where the two sides tend to diverge is that they disagree on the concept of personhood. Maybe We can find some commentators out there who are willing to explore this key aspect of it, because um, in my view, that's really where the action is.
0: So the caller goes on in great detail to explain why personhood is the fundamental split between the two opposing sides in the reproductive rights uh, debate. And this is how I responded. I can either agree with the caller's assertion or at least admit that it is nowhere near uh, you know a crazy perspective to have to say that the idea of personhood is sort of the fundamental philosophical uh, split between the two groups, but where I completely disagree with the caller is when he says that that area of the debate is where the action is. Now, as a side note, did you notice how heavily I hedged myself on that comment? That's, that's purely from experience. You know, reproductive rights is not my uh, area of expertise, and I've been doing this show too long to have not realized in that moment that uh, there's a really good chance I'm about to be corrected on what I'm saying here. So I said, you know, maybe I agree, maybe it's just not crazy. I, I still think it's not a crazy uh, statement for the guy to have made, but I think I have actually been corrected on the idea that personhood is the central crux of the division, uh, as I'm about to demonstrate. So after that episode aired, I received a series of phone calls that I'm actually going to recap now in the form of a brand new call. The message I'm about to play is one that has not been played before, but it nicely recaps uh, the series of arguments that were made that were all very similar to each other. So first of all, this is Mara from Pittsburgh rebutting the idea that personhood is the crux of the argument.
4: Hi, Jay. This is Mara from Pittsburgh. And um, I wanted to say something in response to Colin from Nebraska on the uh, the abortion debate. I completely disagree that the focus of the abortion debate should be on the issue of personhood. I think this because I think personhood is really beside the point. So here's what I mean. I own my own body. If I'm a fully rational adult, I get to decide what I do to it and what gets done to it. You, of course, have a right to life. But if you are dying of kidney failure, I'm not obligated to give you one of mine. I might do that, and it would certainly be very nice of me to do that, but you do not have a right to my kidney. If you need dialysis, doctors could hook you up to me and I could serve as a dialysis, dialysis machine for you. But even if you need dialysis to live, I am not obligated to hook myself up to you and you do not have a right to use my body. Let me emphasize, you have a right to life but you do not have the right to use my body to keep yourself alive. Now, what if it were a baby that needed dialysis? Yes, she has a right to life, but she does not have the right to use my body to keep her alive. No one can can compel me to do so if I do not want to. Even if I were the only person in the entire world who could suitably serve as a dialysis machine for her, she does not have the right to use my body against my will. The fact that she's a baby as opposed to an adult is irrelevant same thing goes for a fetus. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that a fetus is a person and has a right to life from the moment of conception. I don't actually think that, but let's just say that's true. It doesn't matter. The onus on the anti-choice view is to tell me what relevant difference there is between the fetus in my uterus and the person who needs my kidney. I don't see any morally relevant difference. The anti-choice person has to tell me why I suddenly lose sovereignty over my body when a group of cells attaches itself to the wall of my uterus. I don't see why this would be the case. When we look at it this way, we can see that the anti-choice person wants to take control of my body away from me. Anyway, so that's my uh, two cents on the subject. Thanks a lot, Jay. Bye.
0: So that's basically the argument. Those same philosophical principles were used by almost half a dozen other people who called in. Uh, some of which were played on the show, some of which weren't. But but that's basically where we stand, and that's why I say that I've actually been convinced that although I, I obviously the idea of personhood is an idea that plays deeply into a person's opinion on on choice, but I do not think that it is the primary. Uh, issue anymore. It's, it's clearly a very important secondary issue. Uh, it, it seems clear by this reasoning that a person could very well believe that at the moment of conception that that uh, has become a fully separate, independent person with a right to life and still come out uh, on the issue on the side of being pro-choice. So this next message I'm going to play I think has not caught up fully in the conversation. They're responding merely to the first interaction between Colin from Nebraska and myself. It, it, you know, definitely refers to the primacy of, uh, you know, personhood, and it makes the best argument I've heard yet to the idea that life begins at the moment of conception, but misses the point that that is not actually the crux of the issue. Hi,
9: Jay. This is Dirk from Madison calling about your voicemail that you got from Colin from Nebraska I appreciate that both you and Colin recognize the primacy of the concept of personhood in the conversation. I wonder how you automatically assume that only philosophy, ethics, or even theology, as the case may be, to the exclusion of science, can inform us about personhood. Obviously, that depends on how you choose to look at it. You can look into the night sky and start with the scientific knowledge to inform philosophical musing about mankind's place in the universe. You can choose to ponder the universe as a purely scientific topic, as a philosophical one, or intertwining of the two. Regarding human life, we heard you and Colin address the topic of personhood in a philosophical sense. Assuming that we all agree that victimizing any other person, however defined, is wrong, then we need to determine who is and who is not a person. That determination is, according to you, an issue that is philosophical to the exclusion of science. But what if we go the other way and consider what does science say about human life and do so to the exclusion, at least temporarily, of philosophy philosophy? Theology, ethics, just start with the undeniable scientific facts. One indisputable fact of science is that a woman's ovum is part of her person. It was developed by her body with her DNA. Every scientist agrees that an ovum is a living human cell that belongs to the person in which the ovum was created and resides, similarly with sperm cells which are living human cells. No one would refer to either of those cells as a person. Science says that when a sperm meets an ovum and conception occurs, the new cell is undeniably living and undeniably human, more precisely, of the species human, Homo sapiens. There is no dispute in any of the sciences that the newly formed cell has a unique genetic code and that, again, in summary, it's an indisputable set of scientific facts apart from ethics, philosophy, and theology. That the product of human conception is an original, unique, living organism of the species Homo sapiens. So what is the pro-choice philosophical position about when personhood is recognized for a human organism? Is it when that pre-born organism could survive outside the womb? Is it only after it's been born outside the womb? What is the philosophical position that any human organism is not to have personhood bestowed? You're probably right that this is not where the action is in terms of people sliding all around in their opinions and positions with lots of flux and the policy positions implied with the movement in their thinking. But it's more like the DMZ between North and South Korea in that this is the crux of the issue. I think that's the point Colin was making. If you can make a scientific case either way, then the issue is decided. And all you have on the other side is unscientific ideologues. If you can say with absolute scientific certainty that a pre-born is not a person and by implication you remove it and discard it like a tumor, that's fine. You don't need to recognize the personhood if you can show that scientifically. If you can show with scientific certainty that it absolutely is a person, then you ethically cannot victimize it in any way, any more than you could do to a post person. Until then, your philosophy must be informed and supported by the science and personal ethics considerations should be, to the greatest extent possible, compatible and consistent with the indisputable facts of biology. Living, unique, organism. Of the species Homo sapiens, sure sounds like a person to me.
0: Now, I think that was a very well argued perspective, but as mentioned before, I think it comes to a, the false conclusion that the ultimate arbiter of moral right and wrong on this issue is determined by what we would hope would be a scientifically definitive answer to the question of personhood. So, like I said, he doesn't address the idea of bodily autonomy at all, and I don't know if that's because he doesn't think it's relevant, you know, in which case we just know what side of the fence he's on. You know, bodily autonomy is still a thing. It's still an argument, and people come down on one side or the other of it, and maybe he is just on the side that thinks it doesn't matter. Um, But, of course, it does matter to a hell of a lot of people, or maybe he's never heard of it. Or whatever—it doesn't really matter. The point is that we're not—we're not progressing that discussion. You know, at, at this point, he's not—he's not rebutting or improving upon or anything the idea of uh, bodily autonomy. But that brings us to the next caller, who is actually calling to rebut the idea of bodily autonomy. So let's hear that.
8: I wanted to reply to a couple of the callers from last episode who were using an argument of bodily autonomy as it relates to abortion. And I just had a couple of big problems with that analogy and how I really think it's ineffective against arguing with the other side. The big problem with it is that it completely absolves you of any responsibility for the situation that you've been put into, which I think it's important to think of how the other side sees these things, and that's just not how they see it. The vast majority of unplanned pregnancies, I would wager, are caused by not rape or incest, but consensual sex between adults. And if you have consensual sex, then you're responsible for the consequences of that. And if you try to eliminate personhood and say it, it doesn't matter if it's a person, then they're responsible for creating that person and putting that child in the situation that it's in, against its will, or it's dependent upon another person. I think it's like saying I walk you in my basement and I don't feed you, and then saying it's not my fault you starve to death. That's ridiculous. And I think. That's what the other side thinks when they hear this argument that you've been kidnapped and forced to sustain another life with your body. And so I think that's where we're coming from.
0: A quick note on that one that I cut the caller's name off of that message because at the end of his message, he said that he lost his train of thought and it was silly and he was going to call back. So please don't play that message. Uh, he he ended up not calling back as far as I could tell. But the argument as he laid it out, was I think fairly well-reasoned and you know didn't sound silly or or like a lost train of thought at all. So I I went ahead and played it mostly because I have the perfect uh, rebuttal already queued up for it. So I wanted to get the idea out there because I know that people have that thought and I just didn't want to attribute it to a caller who didn't want their message played. So I wanted to get that message out there because we're going to bring it back full circle to Mara from Pittsburgh, who actually, uh, you know, very quickly after leaving her first message that we already heard at the beginning here, called back again because she absolutely foresaw this exact argument being made. So she went ahead and made a rebuttal to it without even having to hear it.
4: Hi, Jay. This is Mara from Pittsburgh, and uh, this is a follow-up to my previous voicemail about personhood. Okay, so again, let's say for the sake of argument that fetus is a person with the right to life. Which, again, I'm not saying I agree with, but just for the sake of argument. An anti-choice person might say that my analogies don't work because when you engaged in sexual intercourse, you knew you could become pregnant. That knowledge, they might say, means that you've taken on a certain responsibility for the outcomes of your actions. In addition, the fetus had no choice in the matter whatsoever, so the fetus is a completely innocent bystander, but you, not so much. Therefore, you have taken on the obligation of providing your body to this fetus until it no longer needs it. In other words, by your actions, you have given up the right to completely control your own body. The analogy here would be that while some stranger who needs dialysis does not have a right to use your body as a dialysis machine, even if she will die without it, however, if you are the one responsible for hooking yourself up to her in the first place, then you have forfeited your right to unhook yourself whenever you please. The answer to this argument is to point out that taking on obligation in this case has to be a matter of degree. If I were kidnapped and hooked up to the person who needs dialysis against my will, then I have no responsibility whatsoever for the predicament, and so, even though the other person is not responsible either, I have the right to unhook myself. Thus, there should be no obligation at all on the part of a rape victim to allow a fetus to use her bo- body against her wishes. On the other hand, if I hook myself up to her with the intention of staying hooked up until she no longer needs my body, then perhaps I do have an obligation to stay that way. Thus, if I have sex with the desire and intention of getting pregnant, then perhaps I have incurred an obligation to be innocent bystander fetus. But what if I'm not kidnapped? And What if I'm not intending to hook myself up? that is what about the cases in between the intention of producing a situation as a result of your actions is a matter of degree and so should be the responsibility for the results of a voluntary action so every time i drive a car there's surely the possibility that i might hit and kill an innocent bystander certainly i could have made it the case that this would absolutely never happen by never driving my car but this is unreasonable But if I take all reasonable precautions against this happening, that is as much as can be asked, and I'm not blameworthy if it does happen. Similarly, if I were engaged in an activity in which I knew there was a slight chance that I could become hooked up to another person to serve as her dialysis machine, as long as I do not intend to become hooked up, and I can and do take reasonable precautions against it, it seems unreasonable for me to be obligated to avoid that activity at all costs. And it seems that if I do happen to become hooked up, I am still a relatively innocent bystander and not obligated to remain hooked up. And it seems that the more innocent I am, the lower the chances are of me becoming hooked up, and the less innocent. Uh, the higher the chances are of me becoming hooked up. Or you can look at it the other way. The lower the chances are of me becoming hooked up, the more innocent I am. Thus, if there's a one-in-a-million chance, it seems that I would have very little obligation to stay hooked up. While if there's a one-in-two chance, I would have much more of an obligation. So, if I do not even know that sex can cause pregnancy because, say, I've been denied sex education, I'm... Certainly innocent, and not obligated to allow the fetus to use my body to survive. And if the pregnancy is a result of a manufacturer's defect in the birth control, or the woman is taking the pill and happens to be the one in ten thousand to get pregnant, or the man has had a vasectomy but happens to be one in the very small minority—I don't know what the numbers are—who are still fertile, the obligation to allow the fetus to use my body to survive is at best very small and it does not seem reasonable that it would trump my right to control my body. Thus, even on this objection by anti-choice people, the vast majority of abortions would still be morally permissible. So, that's my follow-up. Thanks, Jay. Bye.
0: So now just to wrap up and conclude with my agreement at the idea that personhood is not actually the crux of this issue as just demonstrated by the idea that a person actually could believe in life at the point of conception and still have a moral foundation on which they decide to be pro-choice, that moral foundation being the argument of bodily autonomy. And so a person can, you know, if you believe in bodily autonomy, you will basically be assured to come down on the side of being pro-choice. Even if you believe in personhood at the point of conception, whereas the reverse is not true. If you do not believe in bodily autonomy, then you could essentially go either way and your choice will almost certainly be made by your perspective on the issue of personhood at the point of conception. So it is that dichotomy that tells me that personhood is not the crux of the issue, but actually bodily autonomy is the crux of the issue making personhood a secondary issue. If you believe in bodily autonomy and believe in life at the point of conception, then you're probably going to be pro-choice at a policy level, but have very mixed and conflicting feelings about it, and maybe you would never choose to have an abortion yourself, all perspectives which are utterly permissible and welcomed in the pro-choice movement. Whatever choice an individual wants to make is welcomed on that side. It is the idea of imposing your will on others that is not acceptable to the pro-choice movement. That's why they call it choice. So that's gonna be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that's absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, donating your account at donateyouraccount.com/slash best of the left. And stay tuned in by joining up with our award-nominated Facebook and Twitter pages. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
10: And it's
2: a shame how we get so
12: trained. We can't see past the sad stories in and- Bye.